Welcome to Chicken Bites. In this podcast, we unpack the issues which are currently facing the South African poultry industry. Welcome to our latest podcast of Chicken Bites. And as our guest today, we have uh, the return of Chris Hutton, who in our last podcast spoke about the implications of the medium-term budget policy statement. And in the interim, there has been the hosting of an AGOA meeting in Johannesburg with enormous implications to that. So today with Chris, we are going to talk about the where we are going with AGOA. So hello, Chris, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Nikki. Thanks very much for having me back. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Chris. And things have changed somewhat since we first started planning this meeting. We were just going to talk about the, the post-Goa fallout, but now things have moved quite fast. And at the moment, we're sitting with dysfunction, serious dysfunction in our ports. And AGOA is all about trade. So let's get right to it and say, how can one even consider tariff rebates and trade with countries when our ports, which are our lifeblood, are dysfunctional? I think you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. You can have all these trade agreements and compacts and summits, but if your basic trade infrastructure isn't functioning well, then goods, material, products, uh, commodities, none of that can move. South Africa, it looks like it'll be part of the renewed AGOA agreement from 2025 onwards, but that doesn't mean you can take advantage of it. The same for the Africa continental free trade areas. The more blockages, the more inefficiencies, the more of those things you have at your border posts, at your ports, on your railways, on your roads, the more onerous these processes are, the more you, you almost disincentivize trade happening with your country, the more difficult you make it for importers, of course, for exporters. And then at the end of the day, the ultimate negative effect is borne by consumers who possibly have to pay increased costs. They have to wait longer for their various goods to arrive. It's more difficult for businesses to operate in terms of importing manufacturing equipment. So you just increase the costs and the stakes over time all the more. We're seeing it come to a head now, especially at Durban and Cape Town Harbor. These are sort of the consequences if you don't have the right infrastructure decisions, the right policy decisions all those things in place. So from what you've said, it looks like the dysfunction at the ports has been a long time coming and there are structural and fundamental problems with administration, management, maintenance, accountability, all of those, all of those governance issues. This is not just a quick little crisis that's going to be solved. This is big. Yeah, one can look at sort of natural events. You can look at high winds, for example, at the ports will, will make anyone's operations more difficult. But you can plan accordingly. You know when your relatively more windy and difficult periods are in, the, are in the year, for example. You've got the data available. If you know that some of your cranes are a certain amount of years old, you know that those will need to be replaced or mm. they might break down faster than others. Are you planning for that? So, for example, at the port of Cape Town, at the end of last week uh, on Monday, Cape Town port needs about 28 cranes to function optimally. At the start of last week, they only had 18. And by the end of Monday, five had broken down. Now mm. you hope, of course, over the course of last week, some of these were repaired. But where are your contingencies? Where are your planning processes? All that sort of thing. A number of cranes are now apparently on the way from Los Angeles. That will, of course, take quite a bit of time and get everything set up. So there is, there's, there seems to be too much scrambling after mm. the fact when mm -hmm. things are difficult, when 
high winds make things a bit more difficult than one maybe literally thought. But you can put yourself in a much stronger position just by planning adequately and I think having the necessary skills, the necessary investment, the necessary policies in place. Mm. So at the moment, it's crisis management. The problem at the Durban port, what has caused that? Do you know if you're able to tell us in three or four sentences? So it looks like a big backlog of unloading containers. Apparently, some of the issues at uh, Durban Port Terminal 1, Pier 1, has been some of those problems have been a bit better resolved in terms of allocating brackets for trucks, in terms of having berths for container ships to unload. As we speak, as we record, the number of containers waiting to be unloaded, sitting on ships outside Durban Harbour, is over 71,000. And the latest projections from Transnet themselves is that the backlog will take at least until February next year to clear. Sure, sure. I understand that the Durban Port Management was being outsourced to a foreign company. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct at the Pier 2. So there are now some agreements coming into place. The big excitement is around a company based in the Philippines that will come in at Pier 2. But it looks like that agreement will only be all finalized and signed by April of next year. So to give credit, there is some talk of reforms and bringing in new skills and capacity. That being said, it's still taking too long to onboard these things and and sort of agree everything for things to really improve in a positive direction. Okay, well, let's go then to the more long-term view of our trading relationships with the US in particular and AGOA. After the meeting a few weeks ago, how much under threat is our membership? There's a lot of alarmist reporting about how our foreign policy is directly at odds with the US foreign policy, and that's one of the items they look at. But then on the other hand, people say that the trading relationship between the two countries is too important, it's too strategic. What is your opinion of that? I think the latter point is very good and very apt, given how the U.S. is trying to extend its influence, maybe build its trading relationships in Africa through a country like South Africa. It sees a lot of benefit in something like a Goa, but I don't think it's a blank check in terms of, you know, it'll just continue regardless. So one of the senators, I forget the name, who raised some questions about South Africa's AGOA eligibility earlier this year. In the last two weeks, he said, renew AGOA, I'm happy with that, but then immediately implement an out-of-cycle review for South Africa. So that means once it's re-implemented, re-adopted, then investigate whether South Africa's, the government's actions warrant maybe changes to South Africa's participation or possibly graduating South Africa out of AGOA so that it doesn't benefit from that anymore. So... I think the macro takeaway is that it will be renewed. South Africa will form part of it. But the, the government's stance on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and most recently on the conflict between Israel and Hamas and just some of the signals and the way in which it is handled doesn't point to South Africa wanting to be quote unquote neutral, but very firmly taking one side. And that in turn gives countries like the US a bit of pause. And they think, you know, maybe we should have other requirements in place, other demands. Maybe we should restrict some of South Africa's preferential access to US markets as part of a goa. So it just, it sows uncertainty when there really, there doesn't need to be. While you were talking, I just looked up who that particular senator was. And it's Senator Chris Coons, who's a Democrat Mm. from Delaware. So now you know. If we did have a refined AGOA or an amended AGOA or a reduced AGOA rebate agreement, where do you think the impact would fall the hardest? 
I think one has to look at some of the industries that have benefited that are strong in terms of South Africa's trade. So the one that jumps most to mind is probably automobiles. But then secondly, and I'm only saying this sort of thinking off the cuff, so it doesn't mean it's necessarily secondly, but when you look at agriculture, and that boils down to chicken, for example, citrus for all of those exporters in the Western Cape, wine, of course, in the Western Cape as well. Because South Africa exports so much in terms of commodities, and that includes raw materials, of course, so things like coal and mining, which I shouldn't neglect to mention. When you lose that preferential access and then in turn increase the costs of production through the electricity crisis that is ongoing through the logistics issues in South Africa, you just make it all the more difficult for those industries to function. Um, When you talk about supporting emerging players in industries like poultry, then you just add yet one more burden onto them that they need to contend with. Bigger companies, for example, have the resources better than smaller ones, newer and emerging ones to handle these things. When you lose access to something like a Goa or you lose access for certain products, you just, you know, you stack the deck so much against new players, against job creation, against investment. You really shoot yourself in the foot. Senator Coons was talking about, you know, either being restricted or amended. And one of the things he did want to amend was to encourage textiles and garments from Africa. He wanted to expand that, you know, allow a duty-free access to the U.S. market for apparel produced in our countries and then using fabric that's produced elsewhere. That's quite interesting because our textile market actually collapsed after cheap imports came in from the East. Isn't that correct? Yes, absolutely. It's interesting how some of the Goa could be pivoted or tweaked in that direction. So it does indicate a little bit of a maybe an acknowledgement or a realization of some of the sensitivities on the ground and being and wanting to take those on board. Mm. So it's interesting to note that, and I think you're right to highlight it. The role that poultry plays is an interesting one because we do not export our chicken duty-free to the U.S. In fact, one of the trade-offs of the Goa is that the U.S. is allowed a tariff rebate in order to to import poultry to us the uh, or, or export poultry to us. The last time that a Goa was up for discussion, this was a little bit of a sticking point. Do you think it's going to be a sticking point again? I know that when a Goa was being discussed in 2015, there was a lot of alarm that the poultry producers were trying to influence the government to say, no, 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 we do not want rebates on U.S. chicken. Do you think that this is this has changed or do you think this is going to be a sticking point again? Mm, it's difficult to say. I think it will be raised again, but I just wonder where the sticking point will be. So where will the line be drawn, as it were? Maybe mm. there's a bit of a realization that some things need to shift, given that realities are different from what they were years ago. Um, so maybe that could form part of it. Given the industry's importance, especially in the context of South Africans being so under pressure in terms of the economy, it being a form of sustenance for so many millions of people, I wonder how it can be worked around, if at all possible. But mm-hmm. it's difficult to say right now. We haven't yet seen specific indications in this regard, so I'm speaking under correction. But right now, the big focus, all the airtime has been given to automobiles and electric vehicles. And, and wine and nuts and fruit and, and those things. Right. Yeah, it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out, because especially now with our local industry being under so much pressure 
from things like load shedding and infrastructure collapse and the fuel costs and the exchange rate and all those nasties. The poultry industry is probably feeling that time has now come that it does deserve a little bit more attention. So that's going to be something we, we need to look at very closely. Now, as far as timeframes are concerned, this seems to be a moving target. You talked about the fact that the final agreements are going to be concluded in 2025. What would be the final cutoff for a decision to be made? Does it work in that there's a great big announcement? Is there a final summit where papers are signed? How is this process going to conclude so we know where we stand from 2025 onwards? So given that a GOA can be signed off on by the U.S. president, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to take a whole long process and pomp and ceremony through Congress. Given, as we mentioned earlier, South Africa's importance to the U.S. in terms of trade, but also influence, maybe they'll want to make a big show of it and use it to show the U.S. isn't pulling back from the globe and is still very invested in and concerned about and engaged with various countries around the world, maybe that the narrative is that has been neglected. For right now, the deadline is, is I believe, between April and June of 2025. It can be extended at any point before that. It, it can be ended at any point. So, for example, you know, the rhetoric, and it seems all the signs point to a go being renewed, but it also at any point... It can the agreement can be ended. It, it doesn't have to take both houses mm. of Congress go through everything, go through a vote, all that sort of thing. So it's interesting how possibly <laughs> up in the air it could be, despite mm. all the signs pointing that it will be confirmed. So for now, we're looking at hopefully early 2025 at the very latest, possibly through 2024, because of course South Africa has elections at the end of 2024. Mm. So maybe yes. get it onto the agenda and signed off a bit earlier. And then you don't have to worry about it, regardless of whether there's a change in administration in the U.S. or not between current President Biden and possibly um, Republican candidate Donald Trump. The possibilities are quite endless. So the next year and a bit really is going to be a, a diplomatic egg dance, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And that's when, again, one raises questions about some of the South African government's comments or foreign policy choices where, you know, just in the last two weeks, you had questions around whether South Africa should temporarily close the Israeli embassy, calling in the Israeli ambassador to have discussions with him mm. around his comments so some diplomatic moves. And then a few days later, you have announcements that no, the embassy won't be closed, you know, sort of maybe backpedaling a little bit. But all of that creates uncertainty around what the government's position is, who is in charge of foreign policy, who speaks for the government, all that sort of thing. So I think I don't think we should think these events of the last month or so are the last in that regard. There are numerous opportunities for the government to add to confusion and uncertainty. I mean, fairly or unfairly. So mm. there's also a case to be made if they're stuck to a certain principle or position and maintain that consistently, then that would at least alleviate some of the perception of uncertainty. For now, it's a case of speaking with many heads, many mouths, who's responsible, who's not. Is South Africa committed to X or Y? It all sort of feeds into this whole, I guess, maelstrom of, of uncertainty. So what, you, what you're saying, what's coming through loud and clear is that the enemy of any economic growth is, is political uncertainty. 
because it's very difficult to make decisions and put agreements in place if you don't know what the next guy is going to say or, or a government that changes its mind or even a government that changes. Because both the US and South Africa have crucial elections coming up soon, which might change the landscape quite substantially. Final question then, there was quite a bit of fuss being made about the fact that four African countries were expelled because of their internal policies, which basically boiled down to human rights abuses. One can be cynical and say that those four countries were never great big role players in AGOA anyway, so they're not going to be missed. But South Africa is AGOA's largest trader. It's the one that gets the most benefits. It has the most exports. And therefore, it is seen as a more strategic player and as a very strategic player on the African continent as well. So with all of that in mind, I suppose the question is going to be, you know, what, what is going to happen next? Is it now a question of wait and see? Are there moves from the U.S. side that they want to start interrogating certain South African positions or they want to start examining certain industries within South Africa? Is it now really just a very slow process until the deadline in 2025? I think for right now, it's a case of wait and see. I'm sure there'll be opportunities for engagement, so either through government or, or public platforms, uh, maybe trade missions, maybe missions on the part of South African businesses and lobby groups to Washington or when U.S. representatives come to South Africa using those opportunities to engage and provide submissions and feedback and sort of analysis and research. But for now, we aren't yet seeing much in terms of a you know detailed agenda or itinerary. Um, I think the successful hosting of the AGOA Forum in November in Johannesburg was a big box that was ticked. And for now, sort of, we'll see if the, if waters calm a little bit again until the next maybe flashpoint. But for now, I think it'll proceed sort of as expected. Final question, and uh, I hope this isn't an unfair question, but when the discussions began around the continuation of AGOA and there was a lot of hostility, this was round about the time that the U.S. ambassador accused South Africa of siding with Russia and the Lady R that unloaded the alleged unloading of something in Simon's Town. And the temperature was actually quite hot. And there were a number of delegations that went over to the US. And one of them was from the Western Cape. Is it possible for a local provincial government entity to go and make their own arrangements independently of the South African government? Or is with a go, it's all or nothing? I think that's an excellent question and thought process that needs to be considered. Given the skills constraints on the South African government nationally at the moment, fiscal constraints, as you mentioned, we've got an election coming up next year. Local governments, provincial governments or municipal governments there's an opportunity, I think, for them to start filling a bit of a void that is being left by the national government in terms of electricity, logistics, all that sort of thing. Now, that isn't to say that you want to undermine country-to-country agreements or that you want to go against those. I think there could be an, a strong argument to be made for exploring those agreements on their own terms, seeing where one can engage, where you can't legally, constitutionally, all that sort of thing making sure those boxes are ticked. If you can start to build some sort of backup capacity or alternative capacity as a provincial government or a municipal government or a city government, you can put yourself in quite a good stead going forward. Um, I think we're going to see a bit more competing between provincial governments for human resources, for investment, 
the Western Cape at the moment has the better indicators of all the provinces in the country, putting it's on a more positive trajectory compared to other provinces. So that trend will likely continue. And I think that sort of thing could well see things like a Goa maybe, I don't know, tweaked or implemented in different ways. I think it's mm. fascinating to think about and look at. Mm. Um, not nearly enough thought has gone into it up until this point, but I do think there's something to to this. Well, all I can say is that the next year and a bit is then going to be very, very interesting. And I'm sure a lot of people are watching proceedings very closely. Thank you so much, Chris, for your time and for your input and your expertise. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again on these economic issues soon. Thanks very much, Nikki.